Well, uh, the Psalms have 150 chapters. It's the longest book uh, among the 66 books of the Bible, 150 chapters. That's pretty long. And these chapters are, are actually songs or hymns that were written to be used in corporate worship. So when God's people gather together, they would use these psalms, these individual chapters, as praise songs to sing to God. And it's interesting to see the variety of issues that these songs touch on, uh, these, these hymns uh, deal with. And to give you a summary of what the psalms are all about, if you had to kind of look at a major theme that is woven throughout all of these 150 chapters, here's what I would tell you. God... The true and glorious King is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. And so the Psalms remind us that God is worthy of our worship and God is worthy of our trust when times are good and when times are bad. When when you're on a mountaintop, God is worthy of worship and He's worthy of your trust. Amen? When you're in a valley... Guess what? Doesn't change. God is still worthy of worship. He's still worthy of your trust. And that's what the Psalms remind us of. I love the Psalms because they are so raw. They are so honest. You know, sometimes we have a hard time being honest in the body of Christ. And these Psalms are honest. I mean, you see every emotion you can think of someplace in the Psalms. And tonight we're going to look at a chapter where David is dealing with a major mess up in his life. I mean, a major sin issue in his life. And so we're going to learn how you deal with sin and and, and how to think about forgiveness in the midst of that. So Psalm 32, we're going to begin by reading the entire chapter together. It's not real long, so I'm going to read it for us. Psalm 32. Notice it says there, a mascal of David. That's probably a musical term uh, indicating again that this was a, um, a hymn written to be sung by God's people. And so it's a mascal of David. David is the author, king of Israel, the second king of Israel. And it says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. The term selah means something like pause or reflect. Uh, In other words, you usually see that after the psalmist says something dramatic that they want you to stop and think about. Now there's some other... um, ideas that Selah means something like louder, like sing louder. So we don't know exactly what it means, but it's, it's placed there. And then it says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. There it is again, Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found, surely in the rush of great waters, They shall not reach him, for you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. And rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now this psalm is not for you tonight if you're perfect. 
So if you're perfect tonight, if you've never messed up, you've never blown it, then you can go ahead and go home, uh, you know, and just relax and, and watch the beginning of the World Series. All right? Game two of Cleveland and Chicago. You, you can go do that if you're perfect. But if you're not perfect like me, and you think there might be some things to learn about sin and forgiveness and life with the Lord, then you might want to hang around for a few minutes because there's some things here that can indeed help you. And really there are two major themes of this psalm. So we're going to look at the two major themes of the psalm, what the psalm's about, and then we're going to just look at kind of some life lessons to, to walk away with tonight. So first of the two major themes is blessed forgiveness. If you're following along there in your notes, just that first blank, blessed forgiveness. Notice what he says in verse 1, blessed is the one, that word blessed means something like happy or joyful. Happy is the one, joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Verse 2, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And so he's saying here that, that a person that has experienced forgiveness is a blessed person, a happy person, a joyful person. Things are good if you have experienced Forgiveness. Now, to understand forgiveness, because we, we hear that word a lot, we use that word a lot, but I don't think we understand just how incredible God's forgiveness for us is. And so to understand forgiveness, we need to understand a couple things. First of all, we need to understand sin. And it's interesting to note that there are three different words used here to relate, against, to, relate to our wrongdoing against God. So the first word is the word transgression. In the Hebrew language, it's the word Pesha, and it says there in verse 1, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Now, what does the word transgression mean? Well, transgression basically means crossing the line or rebellion against God. It means that God has given us some lines of expectation, uh, lines that He expects us to stay within, and when we decide that those lines aren't important, we decide. What, what God says is not important, then we, in rebellion to what God says, cross the line. And we go in the wrong direction, in rebellion against God. And so every one of us have crossed the line. Every one of us have known some things God's told us not to do or things that God has told us to do. We know the lines, what the lines are, but of our own volition, we have decided to cross the line. Instead of going towards God, we have rebelled and walked away from God by crossing the line of His commandments. And so every one of us have transgressed. We are all transgressors. That's one of the words uh, for our wrongdoing. The second word is the, the common word you hear, sin, uh, kata, in the Hebrew language. Notice what it says there in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin, everyone say sin, whose sin is uh, covered. Uh, the word sin basically means falling short of a mark. That's what it means. Falling short of a mark or missing the mark. And so God has a, a perfect standard, and every one of us have fallen short of that standard. None of us have hit the mark. All right, That's, that's just a reality for all of our lives. As a matter of fact, over in... Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, All have sinned and fallen short of perfection, the glory of God. Every one of us have fallen short. Every one of us have missed uh, the mark. And so that's the second word for our wrongdoing. The third word is the word iniquity. Uh, the word 
uh, hewan in the Hebrew. Look what it says there in verse 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Iniquity. Now, the word iniquity means twisted or crooked. That's what it means. Twisted or crooked. Instead of being on the, the straight path, the right path, we are in a very twisted or crooked path. We, we take life into our own hands and do our own thing and do what we want to do, and we end up making a mess of our lives uh, when we do that. But that's the word uh, iniquity. And so there are three words here, transgression, sin, iniquity, and all of them could be applied to my life, all of them could be applied to your life, and I could go more in depth about my transgression and sin and iniquity, but it's none of your business. All right, none of your business. I, you just need to know that your pastor's a sinner in need of a savior, right? And guess what? You are too. You're a sinner in need of a savior. Why? Iniquity, sin, transgression. We all are guilty. We've all missed the mark. We've all fallen short of God's perfection, God's glory. And you say, well, wait, that's pretty bad news. I thought you said this was going to be uplifting and encouraging, and that, that's, that's pretty bad. Well, to understand the good news, you've got to understand the bad news. Right? Got to understand our problem to understand how good the cure to the problem is. So we looked at the, the, the three statements of what our wrongdoing is. But there's a second thing here under blessed forgiveness. To understand forgiveness, we need to understand what God does with our sin. So we need to understand what sin is, how, how, um, how serious it is. We've rebelled against God. Oh, and by the way, God's perfectly holy, Right? Uh, the Bible says Habakkuk, he's so holy he can't even look upon sin. And so what sin does, according to Isaiah 59, 2, is, is sin separates us from a holy God. That, so because we've all sinned, we've all been separated from God. That's pretty serious, right? Separated from God, the one who is life, the one who gives life. And so what does God do with our sin? If, if we're all sinners, our sin separates us from him, what does God actually do to take care of our sins so we don't have to be separated from God, so we can be close to God, so we can have a relationship with God. What does God do? Well, let's walk through those three terms again because he deals with each one of them. For example, what does God do with our transgression? What's transgression? What's, what is it? Rebellion, crossing the line, right? What does God do with our transgression, our rebellion? Well, he forgives it. Look what he says there in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. So God offers and God brings about forgiveness for those who transgress. Uh, Now, uh, this word, forgives, is a really interesting word in the Hebrew language. It means literally to bear away or to take away. And so God bears away or takes away our transgression. And there was a symbol of this found in the Old Testament sacrificial system. And it's really awesome. On the Day of Atonement, anybody heard of Yom Kippur? Okay, that's the modern day uh, title for what the Bible calls the Day of Atonement uh, in Leviticus chapter 16. On the Day of Atonement, uh, the nation of Israel gathered together and the high priest would go with blood of, a, of, a, of, of shed, of shed blood of, of animals that were slain into the Holy of Holies to throw, we'll talk about this in a moment, to cast blood on the mercy seat as a symbolic reminder that innocence has to die for guilt, that blood has to be shed so people could be forgiven, which all pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But on the Day of Atonement, there are two animals, two goats there uh, in the, the courtyard, 
and one animal was killed. The blood was taken to the Holy of Holies. The other animal, the priest, the high priest, before all the people watching, would lay his hands on the head of the goat and confess all of the sins of the people of Israel. I bet that took a while, right? I mean, what if we gather America together and said, let's spend some time confessing the sins of America. It would take a while, right? Everybody get comfortable. We've done, we've done a lot of sinning, all right? And, and the high priest would confess the sins of the people while holding his hands on this goat. And that goat was symbolically taking all of the sins of the people on himself. Then here's what they would do. They would have somebody lead the goat past all of the people of the nation of Israel out into the wilderness. And the people, I can bet this is very touching, the people of Israel would watch this goat symbolically bearing their sins, taking their sins away. By the way, that's where the term scapegoat comes from. Scapegoat. The, 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 the goat would take their sins and bear them away. And this was all symbolic of what God does with our sins. He takes our sins and bears them away. Which gives us a, 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 an entirely fresh appreciation for what John the Baptist said the first time Jesus walks up. He says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He's speaking there of forgiveness, bearing away our sin. So that's why Jesus died on the cross, right? Jesus left the splendor and glory of heaven. He came to this earth, and he, after living a perfect life, went to the cross. And on the cross, the Bible says he became sin for us. He took all of our sin on himself. He was our scapegoat. He was our lamb that was slain. He took all of our sin on himself and paid the penalty that we deserve to pay. He paid the punishment that you and I deserve for our sin. He paid it on the cross. And if we embrace him as our Lord and Savior, he bears our sin away. He takes it away. Isn't that awesome? To where we live under it no longer. It's it's been taken away by Christ. And so that word forgive there speaks of God bearing away our sin, lifting away our sin. The theological term for this is expiation. God bears away our sin. Uh, It reminds me of the wonderful hymn by Horatio Spafford, uh, It Is Well With My Soul. That wonderful verse, I don't know if there's been a better verse written in uh, hymnody, when it says, My sin... Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross. Listen, and I bear it no more. Why do I bear it no more? Because Jesus bears it. Jesus takes it away. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Aren't you glad that God takes our iniquity and he bears it away? Every time you've crossed the line. Every time I've crossed the line, Jesus took it on himself so he could carry it away, take it off of our shoulders, and take it far, far away. The Bible says that God takes our sin away as far as the east is from the west. Right? That's a long ways apart. They're forever separated, and God takes our sins away. And so we can be grateful that he bears away, he forgives our transgression. What does God do with sin? Because he mentioned the three terms, transgression, sin, iniquity. What does he do with sin? Well, look what it says there in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, born away. Secondly, whose sin is covered. Covered. What does it mean that our sin is covered? That's, again, another interesting phrase. 
And again, this phrase or this word uh, takes us back to the Day of Atonement. The first goat would uh, have the sins confessed as the high priest laid his hands on the head and it would take away, uh, bearing away the sins symbolically. The other goat had to die. It would actually have its blood shed. And the, uh, the high priest would take that blood from the, the animal that was slain into what they call the Holy of Holies, there in the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was. And he would go in before the Ark of the Covenant. only time he could go in the, before the Ark of the Covenant that year, once a year. And the Ark of the Covenant, this box, had a, had a lid on it that was called the mercy seat. All right? And in the box were the, the tablets that God gave Moses the Ten Commandments on. And if you remember, God's presence rested on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And so uh, between the cherubim, these, these crafted angels that were made of gold, that were sitting on top of the mercy seat, was God's presence. Then you had, this, the, you had the, the, the top of the box, the mercy seat. Then you had the, the, the commandments of God. And so the high priest would take this blood and sprinkle it on the lid, sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And all of that meant is that, hey, we've broken God's commandments, and it separates us from God's presence. But the high priest put that shed blood on there as a reminder that one day one would come and shed his blood to forgive our disobedience to God's commandments. So we would not have to be separate from God's presence. And so... The shed blood covered the broken law, shielding the sinner from God's judgment. Now, in the Greek, the word for mercy seat means, means propitiation, which means to take away or God's wrath being satisfied or being turned aside. Look what it says over in Romans chapter 3. Look there with me. Romans chapter 3, verse 24. Romans 3, verse 24. Let me tell you what it calls Jesus. Well, look at verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of what that, that goat symbolized. The blood being shed uh, pointed to the death of Jesus on the cross where His blood would be shed. And his blood would be a propitiation that covers our rebellion of breaking God's law so that God can satisfy his wrath by punishing Jesus instead of punishing us. That's what propitiation means. And so that word cover speaks of God uh, pouring out his wrath upon another so we could be forgiven for our sin. Pretty good stuff, right? So back in uh, Psalm 32, what does God do with Transgression, he forgives it. What does he do with with sin? He covers it. Third, what does God do with our iniquity? Look what it says there in verse 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So what does God do with our iniquity? He, He doesn't count it against us. He doesn't count it against us. If you know Christ. Because over in... Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus took our sin and died for it on the cross, 
after living a perfect life. So when we embrace Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, when we place our faith in, in what he has done for us, our sin is applied to his account, and he pays for it by his blood, by his death, by, by taking the punishment of God for us. His perfection, his righteousness is given to us as a gift. That's a pretty good deal, right? When you are saved, when you are converted, Jesus gets your sin and pays for it all. You get his righteousness as a free gift. Pretty cool, right? You get his right standing before God. And so because Jesus paid the penalty on the cross, God doesn't count our sin against us anymore. It's been paid for by Jesus Christ. And so he doesn't count our iniquity against us. So I was saved when I was nine years of age. I asked Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. Because of that, God is no longer holding my sin against me. Saying, you're guilty, Wade, you're guilty, Wade, you're guilty, Wade. No, it's been paid for by Christ. It's no longer being held to my account. Jesus took it to his account and shed his own blood to take the punishment in my place. Let me show you this real quickly from from Paul. Look in Romans chapter 4 where this psalm is quoted. Psalm 32 is quoted. Romans chapter 4 verse 5. To the one who does not work but believes in him, in other words, to the one who's not trying to earn his way to heaven. None of us can earn our way to heaven. So it's to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that's Jesus, his faith is counted as righteousness. All right? God saves you by faith, not by achievement, not by doing good things. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, verse 7, quoting from Psalm 32, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven whose sins are covered, blessed is a man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So by faith, your sin is not counted against you anymore. It's it's paid for by Jesus. He counts you as righteous because you've been given the gift of the righteousness of his son. Now look over in Philippians 3. Paul gets this, and, and he's just overwhelmed with it. Philippians chapter 3, Paul's sharing his testimony. He's using accounting terms here, verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So again, hey, when I was saved, Paul says... Jesus got my sin, and I got his righteousness. I got his perfection as a free gift. Pretty cool. So that's how God sees us positionally. Our sins have been paid for, and he sees us as being robed in the righteousness of his son. So that's blessed forgiveness. If you know Christ, all of these things I just talked about are realities in your life. Your iniquity has been taken away by Jesus. Your sin has been covered by the blood of Jesus. And your, your, uh, your iniquity, he doesn't count it against you any longer. It's been, the penalty has been paid. And so that is blessed forgiveness. So back in Psalm 32, David is trying to help us to understand blessed forgiveness. But the second part of the psalm, David focuses on broken fellowship. Broken fellowship. David was a man after God's own heart. He was a man of faith in the promises of God. 
Now, David lived on the earth hundreds of years before Jesus Christ came and died on the cross and rose from the dead. So how was David saved? Because I'm saved by, by believing in what Jesus Christ did for me, right? I'm trusting in the finished work of Christ. When I was nine, I heard the good news. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He rose from the dead. I heard that, believed that. He did that for me. And so I, I placed my trust in him to save me and called on him to be my Lord and Savior. And that happened when I was nine years of age. Got that? What about David? He lived before Jesus died on the cross, before Jesus rose from the dead. Well, I'm saved. I was saved by faith, by looking back at what Jesus did. David was saved by faith, looking forward to what Jesus was going to do. He trusted in the promises of Redeemer. He trusted in the promises of God. So he was saved. That's why the Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. The Bible wouldn't call an unsaved man a man after God's own heart. David was redeemed. He was born again. He was a believer. And as a believer, David blew it big time. How bad did David blow it? Well, adultery. He committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. And it was betrayal of a close friend because Bathsheba was one of his mighty men's wife. Uriah the Hittite, one of his 30 mighty men that fought and bled for David, was loyal to David. Uriah's wife Bathsheba, uh, David uh, called for her and committed adultery with her. I mean, a man after God's own heart, he blew it. And then to try to cover it up because Bathsheba found out that she was pregnant from David, he lied and he actually arranged for Uriah to be killed, to be murdered, to cover up his sin. That's pretty, that's pretty serious stuff, right? Adultery, lying, murder. I mean, you look at the Ten Commandments, he just kind of broke them all. All right? He did some really wicked stuff. And then uh, he thought he got away with it. He thought that he could convince people, okay, Uriah's dead, and I took Bathsheba in as my wife quickly, uh, this widow to, to care for her, and everybody's going to think um, that the child uh, is mine legitimately. Uh, not, it didn't happen while she was still married to Uriah. Uh, but God knew, even though no one else knew except Bathsheba, God knew. And in 1 Samuel chapter 12, God sends a prophet named Nathan to confront David. And here's how he does it. It's, it's really uh, interesting to see this. Um, Nathan sets David up. Nathan says, Hey, David, there's this guy in your kingdom, and he's, he's poor. And the only, only possession he has is this one little ewe lamb. He loves that ewe lamb so very much. He takes care of that ewe lamb, uh, and, and, and he's poor. And it's all he really has, but he, but he really loves this little lamb. And so David's listening to the story. And Nathan said, there's this another guy who's wealthy and rich. He has all kinds of livestock and he decided he wanted that one little ewe lamb. And so he went to that poor man, and he took his ewe lamb away. And David, he's sitting on his throne. David comes up, what? That rich man with all that light took that one little ewe lamb? He's going to be punished. He's angry at the injustice. And Nathan the prophet says, you're the man. That story was about you, David. All these ways God has blessed you, and you went and took Uriah's ewe lamb that belonged to him. You are the man. And then David uh, begins to repent and, 
And even though he goes through some very serious consequences for his sin, he repents and gets right with God. Psalm 32 is written out of that repentance. It's, it's a companion psalm of Psalm 51, uh, where he sinned against God. Psalm 51 tells us at the beginning, this is after his sin with Bathsheba. Uh, it's, a, it's a prayer of repentance. And so, in these next few verses, David's talking about what it was like to have rebel against God as a believer, as a man after God's own heart, and the, the, how hard it was. Look what he says about this broken fellowship in verse 3. For when I kept silent, silent about my sin, I was trying to keep it close to the vest, I thought I got away with it, didn't want anybody to know, you know I, I, thought my, I thought I'd gotten away with my sin. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. Selah. So he's saying, well, I tried to cover my sin and get away with it. God, you didn't let me. You took me through either some physical discomfort. We talked about sickness last week. You took me through some physical discomfort uh, as a result of my sin. You, you, even though I thought I was getting away with it, I wasn't. And I was, I was suffering the consequences of trying to cover my sin up. Then he says in the next verse, I acknowledge my sin to you. I came clean after you confronted me with Nathan, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. And so David is relaying the incident of covering his sin as, as one who is guilty, and yet being confronted and then confessing his sin and getting right with God. That's what this, this is about. So he's talking here about broken fellowship, and it starts with the misery of unconfessed sin. The misery of unconfessed sin. I've said this before, and it's raised some eyebrows, but I think it's a true statement. The most miserable people you'll come across are not unbelievers that are just pursuing whatever they want to pursue in life. I mean, that's what unbelievers do, right? They chase the passions of their life, and, uh, and they're just doing their thing. Uh, sometimes I think Christians get surprised when lost people act like lost people. I mean, that's what lost people do. They, 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 they are living for themselves with, without the restraint of the Holy Spirit, just doing their thing. And, and I don't believe those are the most miserable people you'll find. Now, eventually, they'll suffer the consequences of their sin and, and, and be broken. But, but I don't think a lost person is the most miserable person you'll find. I think an unbelie- I mean, a believer in Christ who is in sin and knows it is the most miserable person you'll find because they are under the deep conviction of the Holy Spirit. God is making them miserable. Listen to this quote from Warren Wearsby. He writes, What happened to David during these difficult months? The months when he's trying to get away with his sin. All right, The months when he thought he had, he had gotten away with it. For one thing, he became a physical wreck. He was probably about 50 when he disobeyed the Lord, but he began to feel and look like a sick old man. Usually robust and ready for action, David now had constant pain in his body and was groaning because of it. The hand of God was heavy upon him. And instead of feeling fresh and full of vigor, he was dried up like a plant during a drought. Did he have a fever that dehydrated him? Whatever it was, he was miserable. For he had, he had, a, he had a defiled conscience, a worried mind. You know, when will I be found out? A worried mind. Hey, when you are trying to cover over your sin and get away with it, you're always looking over your shoulder, aren't you? Wonder when it's going to be found out. And he had a sick body, Wearsby says. But it was worth the pain. Why? For the experience brought him back to the Lord. His pain was, true, was proof that God cared for him and was not going to let him get away with his sin. So eventually he would get right with God. Charles Spurgeon says it like this. God 
does not permit his children to sin successfully. I like that. I don't like it because it's painful when you're going through it, but I like it that God cares enough about me to want me to get right when I'm wrong. Does that make sense? Let me say it again. I think you were listening. God does not permit his children to sin successfully. He's not going to let you get away with it. Right? So we need to understand that. God does not permit his children to sin successfully. So when we are in rebellion against God, even though we're Christians, we are miserable. Now let me explain to you what, what's happening here. Because you, you say, wait, you just told us that God you know, bears away our sin. He doesn't count it against us anymore. He forgives it. Jesus shed his blood. So why as a Christian, when I sin, why am I miserable? Why does this stuff happen? Well, let me give this statement. For the child of God, now this is so important, you got to get this. For the child of God, sin does not break your relationship with God. It affects your fellowship with God. So once you're a child of God, nothing will ever change that. Once a child of God, always a child of God. That will never change. Once you are in Christ, once you are saved, you will always be saved. You will not lose your salvation. All right? You're secure in Christ. Jesus said, Nothing can snatch you out of my hand. All right? Nothing will break that relationship, even your sin. But sin for a Christian impacts our fellowship, our closeness with God. If you're a Christian and you are in sin that you have not dealt with, you're far away from God and you know it. And you've heard the phrase, if you feel far away from God, guess who moved? It's, it's, it's because of your decision to sin and not deal with your sin. All right? And so sin doesn't break your, your relationship. It affects your fellowship. Um, let me illustrate it like this. My dad is Buddy Humphreys. I'm a child of Buddy Humphreys. And uh, that will never change. I'm a child of his. I'll always be a child of Buddy Humphreys. No, nobody can change my status as a child of Buddy Humphreys. Right? But let's just say that I was home uh, over the holidays and I walked up to my dad and I said, Dad, um, I hate you. I don't like you at all. I don't think you're a good father. I don't think you're a good man. I don't want anything to do with you. And I, of my own volition, decided to disrespect my father. Now, would he still be my father? Would he? Yes. Would there be some strain between us? Until we get right? Yeah. Yeah, he said, right, but he would be upset with me, and we would not be close as we could be as father and son. And that's what sin does for the Christian. It doesn't mean we lose our salvation, but it does mean our closeness with God is affected. So, if you look in your notes, when, when we receive complete positional forgiveness at the moment of conversion. So when Jesus died on the cross for your sins, he paid for all of them. Right? All of them. Every one of your sins. They're paid for by the blood of Jesus. If you've embraced him as your Lord and Savior, he's, he's borne those sins away. He's covered them with his blood. He's offered you forgiveness. All right? He's forgiven you of those sins. So we uh, are saved at the moment of conversion. We receive complete positional forgiveness. Our sins are paid for completely. But when we sin as Christians, we are to confess those sins so we can enjoy a clean heart and renewed closeness to God. So we can enjoy 
the forgiveness that Jesus paid for on the cross. We can live in that by having a close relationship with God. So, for example, turn to Psalm 51, verse 10. Quick on the drawback there, Bob. That was quick. Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within. That's David talking after this whole debacle with Bathsheba and Uriah and murder and all of that cover up. He's he's praying for for, for uh, he's repenting and he says, God, my heart is dirty. Would you give me a clean heart again? And that's what Christians need to do when we sin and our fellowship is disrupted with God. We need to confess it so we can have a clean heart. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to uh, forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you're a believer in Christ and you've got sin in your life, the way you deal with it is not by hoping it goes away or ignoring it or covering it up. The way you deal with sin as a believer is to confess it to God. Now that word confess in 1 John 1, 9 is, is fascinating. It's the word homo legeo. It's a compound word. Homo means the same. Legeo means to speak. So confession means to speak the same thing. And so when we're confessing our sins, here's what we're doing. Don't miss this. We are saying the same thing about our sin that God says. We're not making excuses. We're not trying to minimize our sin. We're saying, God, I blew it. This was wrong. It was rebellion against you. I shouldn't have done it. I don't, I don't want to do it anymore. So God, I'm confessing it to you because I want you to cleanse my heart and I want you to help me to do better. That's confession. That's confession. Hey, and by the way, and, and I don't mean this to, I'm not, trying to um, I'm not trying to be ugly towards denominations that practice this, but listen to me. Jesus is our high priest, so we get to go directly to him. You don't have to come to me and confess your sins. Praise the Lord. Okay, I don't want to be doing that all day. You coming and telling me all the sins you've committed, all right? No, you get to go directly to Jesus. He's the great high priest. And confess your sins, and he, he will cleanse you. And, and here's the great thing about Jesus. He's not, he's not a Savior that gives you a, a second chance. He gives you a lot more chances than that. He gives you fresh start after fresh start. After fresh start, after fresh start, what does the Bible say in Lamentations? That his mercies are new, what? Every day. God has built into the rhythm of our lives a fresh start every day. So maybe we should consider every day just getting right with him. Just evaluating our lives, our hearts. Is there anything there that that I've been doing that that dishonors God, that's affecting my closeness with Him. And if there is, I'm going to confess it. I'm not going to make excuses about it. I'm going to confess it and ask God to cleanse me and help me to do better. Help me to have victory over this area in my life. And let me show you one more verse. Look over in Proverbs with me. Proverbs 28, verse 13. This is a really important verse. Proverbs 28, verse 13. It's already up there on the screen. Bob, people are going to stop bringing their Bibles. Because you get up there so quick. All right. That's auxiliary. We want you to be able to have that, you know, but it's good to have your Bible too. All right. If you don't have one, we'll give you one. And I mean that sincerely. We have a bunch around here that we give away. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen. it says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. In other words, if you're trying to cover up and hide and get away with, you're not going to prosper. All right. Spiritually emotionally, socially, intellectually, 
even physically. You're not going to prosper if you're trying to cover up your sin and trying to get away with it. But look what he says next. But he who confesses and what? Forsakes them will obtain mercy. How many of you have been like me and you've confessed this sin knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt you're going to do it again? Raise your hand. Hey, God, uh, yeah, I, I blew it, I messed up, but you know, you know that you're going to do it again. You know it's going to happen. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying, blessed is the one who confesses and forsakes. And so confession is not just saying, hey, God, I blew it. Oops, I did it again. To quote Britney Spears, all right? Oops, I did it again. I think that's who sang that song. And why do I know that? But anyway, um, oops, I did it again. Uh, that's not confession. That's not what confession is, all right? Confession is saying, God, I, I blew it, I, I messed up, and I don't want to do it anymore. So would you cleanse my heart, and, and would you help me to do better, to go in a new direction so I can have victory in this area in my life? That is what he's talking about here, confession and forsaking. Very, very important stuff. So... When we sin as Christians, we are to confess those sins so we can enjoy a clean heart and renewed closeness to God. I believe, this is what I believe, this is anecdotal, I don't, I've not done research on this or done polling, but just, just kind of the ebb and flow of ministry. I believe that confession is one of the most under-practiced disciplines with, with Christians today. I believe most Christians don't do this, what we're talking about. They don't confess their sins. And they're just kind of walking around day after day, and they got some stuff in their life, and they know this affecting their relationship with, or their fellowship with God. They, they know that it's there. They know that it's weighing them down, but they don't deal with it. They just kind of let it sit there like a, like a cancer, and it begins to just work its way deeper into their heart and soul. Confession is dealing with it. It's getting the sin out of your life, out of your heart, so you can, so you can go in a new direction and experience God's mercy and grace and renewed closeness to him so back to the illustration you know say I disrespect my dad I'm still his son I'm still the son of Buddy Humphreys that'll never change nothing no one can change that but say I go to him and say dad you know I was wrong I disrespected you I shouldn't have done that I want to have a a close relationship with you as father and son now that's a whole different ball game in it now dad and I instead of being strained and distant now dad and I are close and growing closer together. Listen, if you are a child of God, confession is getting sin out of your life that disrupts your closeness to God so you can grow closer and closer to him as your father. I I cannot overemphasize how important it is to practice regular, consistent confession of your sin. If not, you're going to just carry it around and just be miserable. And that's no way to live, right? It's no way to live. And so, Psalm 32 is about that broken fellowship and how to have that fellowship restored. So, let me just close with some quick life lessons and we'll be through. Some quick life lessons. Psalm 32. First life lesson that comes out of this blessed forgiveness, broken fellowship. Now, I have some time for questions in a moment because I may have raised some questions as I taught. If you have never experienced God's forgiveness Go to him before it's too late. Look what David says back in Psalm 32, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. So he's saying, hey, there's a day of judgment coming, and if you wait for the day of judgment to try to get right with God, it's going to be too late. 
And so if you, are, uh, uh, if, you, if you don't know that you're saved, if you don't know if you're born again, and you've never experienced God covering your sin and bearing away your sin and forgiving your sin, uh, not counting your sin against you, if, you, if you've never experienced that, you know what? God loves you and offers you forgiveness, complete, total forgiveness, as an absolutely, listen, an absolutely free gift. You don't have to join the church to get it. You don't have to become a Baptist to get it. You don't have to uh, improve your life. Matter of fact, most people get it out of order. I've come across people that say, you know what, I want to get serious about Jesus one day uh, in church and all of that, but let me get my life kind of straightened out first, and then I'll get serious about the Lord. But what happens? You never get your life straightened out, do you? Because, listen, you can't straighten out your life without God's help. So listen, you, you don't clean up your life to come to Jesus. You come to Jesus to clean up your life. And so, as a free gift, an absolutely free gift, Jesus offers you salvation. The Bible says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Right? It's just calling out to him, receiving by faith that free gift. Jesus died for you. He rose from the dead. He defeated your sin. He defeated death itself. If you ask him to be your Lord and Savior, place your faith in what he's done for you, he will forgive you of all of your sin, past, present, and future. It'll be washed away. Isn't that good news? Awesome. Awesome what he offers you. Absolutely free gift. So go to him before it's too late. Second life lesson. As a Christian, don't be stubborn about your sin. Deal with it. Look at the illustration he uses here. I'll instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. So David's saying, I've learned some things here about broken fellowships. I'm going to give you some, some insight in how you deal with it. He's saying, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding. Now remember, this was sung in corporate worship. Wouldn't that be an awesome song to sing? Don't be like a horse and mule. Don't be. I mean, wouldn't that be fun to sing a song like that? You know? Um, He's saying, don't be stubborn, don't be hard-headed without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. And so he's saying, listen, horses and mules, if they don't have a bit, if they don't have a bridle, they go their own way. They are stubborn. Don't be like that. Hey, if you've got an issue in your life, don't, don't try to cover it up. Don't try to get away with it. Don't try to just think it's going to go away. Deal with it. Confess it to God. Come clean. There's freedom in that. There's, there's, there's joy in that when you come clean with your sin and ask God to help you to do better. So don't be stubborn. I don't know why you and I have the tendency to be so stubborn and just go do our own thing and just ignore the Lord when we need to deal with our sin. Third, life lesson. As a Christian, we should rejoice in God's grace. Look what he says. Many are the sorrows, verse 10, of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And so listen, if you've experienced conversion, your sins being paid for by Jesus, full, complete, free forgiveness, and you've been given this mechanism of confession when you stumble and fall as a Christian, so you can come clean and have your heart cleaned up and have renewed closeness to God, you should be joyful. That God has given you everything you need to deal with your greatest problem, which is you. You know what my greatest problem is? My greatest problem is me. My iniquity, my transgression, my sin. Your greatest problem is you. And God offers you forgiveness for for your sin. And he offers you confession 
to get right with him when as a believer you stumble and fall and need to come back closer to him. And so God has given you everything necessary to deal with your sin and to deal with my sin. And so what should we do? We should rejoice. He mentions there, verse 11, shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Listen, Christians are not perfect. They're forgiven. So when we come together on Sundays or whenever, we we should have joy in our lives. Not because we're perfect, but because we know how imperfect we are. But we have embraced the free gift of forgiveness and eternal life found in Jesus. And we're just really excited about grace. Right? That's what should characterize our joy as believers. And so, some really powerful words here. Psalm 32, the reminder of how great it is to be forgiven, how, ex- how great it is as a Christian to experience that renewed forgiveness when you stumble and fall.